Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Degnan. This week, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale had a chat on Facebook with Christy Bucar. She's the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Library Association. We all love our libraries, so let's find out what they talked about and how it impacts libraries in our area. Libraries are obviously a critical part of all of our community, whether it be small towns, rural uh, America, or certainly in our cities as well. And during COVID, they've had to adjust just like any other organization. And it's such an, for I know for York City in particular, where a lot of the students need the uh, libraries to have access to the internet, computers, because maybe they don't have access to it at home. And I know that certainly not the case just in cities, but in so many towns across our country. Um, and wanted to have a discussion about what the impacts of COVID was, uh, uh, or is, and and maybe continuing will be to our public library system as we move forward as well. So wanted to inc- invite Christy here. Christy, can you if you just want to introduce yourself and tell sure. people a little bit about yourself and how long you've been doing this before we can maybe uh, go a little bit into a deeper dive. Absolutely. Well, uh, my name is Christy Buker. I am the executive director here at the Pennsylvania Library Association. And the association's been around since 1901, so we have a long history of representing and unifying libraries. And I want to take a moment to differentiate that we have all types of libraries. Um, Public libraries are most what most people are familiar with, but of course we also represent academic and college libraries, special libraries like medical libraries, law libraries, and even uh, the Pennsylvania Senate Library has... uh, Wow, so everybody needs a representative. That's right. We have all different kinds of libraries with all different kinds of resources, and the association does represent all of them. Um, And I want to take a moment to just say for those that are out there, I am not a librarian. I represent the association and help them advance their mission, which is simply to advance libraries and librarianship. And I say that with all due respect, because our librarians are a vast majority of really intelligent creative and hardworking individuals and library directors at our public libraries are folks who have their master's degree in library and information science because it is a profession that is changing and evolving in helping our communities. But as far as Pennsylvania, we do have 456 public 
libraries that receive state aid, and they have a total of 629 outlets. So across our 67 counties, we have a diverse group of libraries. Some of those are very small libraries. And when I say outlets, I mean things like bookmobiles or branch libraries. Yeah. So some libraries are just a standalone independent 501c3 charitable organization and some are countywide systems where there might be one main library and then multiple others um, you mentioned york for example salem square was a branch that yeah. opened for them a couple of years ago in a high need community so our, our public libraries are the ones that most people get their start at with a, a library in pennsylvania usually as a young child but some folks don't see their first library until they are in a school library. Mm -hmm. And some folks, even when they go to their college libraries, uh, I was talking with a college librarian not too long ago who the person was like, what do you mean? I can check these out for free with my library card. Um, so there's a diverse array of libraries yeah. across Pennsylvania. And we do represent all of them and their needs. Um, it, it's interesting. Most people think libraries are fully publicly funded but libraries in Pennsylvania are not fully publicly funded right. entities. Um, state aid to libraries only represents about 15 to 17% of most of their operating budget. Local support, whether it's municipal or county, represents yeah. a large portion, but fundraising is a huge right. part of library operational budgets. And uh, that during COVID-19 has been a huge impact and a pain point for a lot of our libraries. Yeah, I know some of it may be, you know, private foundations that have a dedicated piece of that foundation moving forward. Um, and, you know, here in York, there's a piece of our real estate tax goes to that as well. So it's right. an array of funding. And we also know, and I mean, I'm not 100% sure on all the details, but I am sure that in the counties that have that increased sales tax, I think it's Philadelphia and Allegheny, a piece of that, certainly what they call that regional asset district, probably right. also goes to the libraries in those individual counties as well, I'm sure. Yeah, and that is true. Allegheny County, uh, where the regional asset district is, does re give a portion of that revenue to the libraries. And unfortunately, in times like this, when they've been hit with decreases, yeah. um, the library takes a hit too. And yeah. It, it's difficult on the budget when you're in the year for the year to take those kind of cuts. So they've had to realign some of what they're doing to make sure that they're still serving their communities because libraries, depending on the community in, you may have a wealthy benefactor, uh, you may have an endowment to work from, but not all libraries have that. And especially over the past 10 years, uh, library funding just until recently had not had any significant increases so it was difficult because they've used up a lot of their reserves that they might have had mm. just trying to maintain operations because they're so dedicated to serving their community and providing resources and staff and programming. So it's it's been interesting during these last couple of months to see where they're at and where the future is going for them. Now, Christy, obviously there's all different sizes mm -hmm. in all different of libraries and all different types of communities. Is there an overall guidance that the associations put out on safety measures during COVID or is that a library by library situation? So two part answer on that. Uh, one, in Pennsylvania libraries that receive state aid do follow, there is actually library code. Um, there is library law, if you will, and regulations that they have to follow, including depending on the community that they serve, their population, how many hours they must be open. Um, during the pandemic, we as the association have had a lot of collaborative conversations 
um, because some of our libraries are departments of a municipality or a department of a county. Uh, for example, Peters Township Library out towards Pittsburgh um, is a department of the county. So we can't really dictate to them what their policies right. and best practices. But the Office of Commonwealth Libraries under Pennsylvania Department of Education is the entity that oversees state-aided public libraries. And they did provide specific, you must shut down now because libraries right. are community gathering spaces. Right, right. We can't have people clustering together. Right. Um, but we've worked together to have forums and conversations to share best practices and provide guidance on how to interpret what they need to do in terms of delivering services to their patron while still meeting the guidelines of wearing masks and plexiglass barriers and do we allow how many people into the building? Do we allow people to come in and congregate or right. even browse to put their books up? Because COVID-19, um, most libraries are quarantining their materials too, because as the virus passes, uh, potentially from touch points and how long it stays on materials, there have been some studies done that emphasize, you know, it can stay for a while. So libraries yeah. want to be safe we serve a lot of vulnerable population, including the elderly and the young and those with medical conditions. So it's really important that we're doing best practices to make our libraries safe for our communities too. Now, as, and again, I know there, there, it is still in a sense, a work in progress of how this is gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And each district is gonna be different, but right. for the school districts that utilize their public libraries traditionally for you know computer access, because, you know, as much as some of us are blessed to have great Wi-Fi and your personal laptop, we, we know that not every student in Pennsylvania has access to that. And usually the, the public library mm -hmm. is one of the entities that, that is used to help students with that um, when they're not in school, if they have to do do research or what have you. Uh, what types of, and again, I know it's not a, a, a statewide rule one way or the other, but what are some of the measures that are being taken place by some of the libraries to try to make sure that students still have access to that ability while at the same time maintaining safety. Absolutely. So number one, some of our libraries do check out mobile Wi-Fi hotspots. And you think about it, your internet connection might be a $55 a month bill. And some folks, A, can't afford that, but B, may not have a good connection. So that mobile right. hotspot allows many communities to have better access. But two, during this time, um, I'm really pleased to say as our librarians reach out into the community, we've worked with a couple of organizations that are expanding Wi-Fi beyond just the building. So up in the northwest corner of Pennsylvania, for example, they're working with a volunteer organization called ITDRC and its Information Technology Disaster Resource Center, where they're bringing in some of the stationary Wi-Fi hotspots that you would see after a hurricane or a tornado. And they're setting them up in the building so that the Wi-Fi extends outside the building into a parking lot. So it's not, you know, it's not a perfect solution. It's not yeah. in their home, but it's a really creative solution to expand that so that those communities that need Wi-Fi, that can't afford it, or it's just not in their community, they could drive up be in the parking lot, still be socially distant yeah. and have Wi-Fi access to do. Um, and that's assuming they have the technology, whether it's a computer or a smartphone right. um, to access what they need. Great. Now, the way this works is that I can't see all the questions. So we have to turn it back over to our sure. faceless moderator here, Gary Miller. Uh, 
uh, for what questions may be coming through from the um, social media world out there. So, Gary, how you doing today? And uh, uh, any questions for uh, Christy or myself from uh, the social media land out there? Doing well, thanks, General. Christy, it's nice to speak with you today. Um, Thank you. Particularly among uh, younger uh, uh, people who are who have grown up with the internet, they may wonder why we still need libraries in the mm -hmm. digital era. Would you address that for us? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, will say, like, if we do have a smartphone, you know, why do we need a librarian? And and I'll say it like this uh, explanation that makes sense to a lot of us. If you walk into a library right now, assuming that they're open to their doors and say to a librarian, you know, I really need help finding this book that was written by a York County author and she was a female author in roughly the 1970s. Librarians have spent a lot of time on that information science and organizing their resources and material. And they'll be able to plug in those few keywords or what we call metadata and search out the solution for you. And they have it in such an organized fashion that they may say, you know what, hey, we don't have it at this library, but I can tell you on our statewide catalog that the next county over has that book for you. And oh, by the way, through our access line, we can have it requested through interlibrary loan, sent to our local library and be available to you. So they help you find the right answer. It's different than doing a Google search and getting a million hits on medical information. And you don't know if the person who posted that website is actually an accredited doctor, or if there's somebody selling you a health product, or if there's somebody who's ranting about a bad experience that they had personally. So it's really important what the librarians do to help make sure that they're getting vetted sources of information and accurate information. Uh, you know, we all rely on our assistance and Google gives you lots of great information, but it can be overwhelming and the librarian's gonna help you get to really what you're looking for and know that it's not uh, you know, some sort of scam to sell you something in the background. Great answer. Thank you, Christy. A lot of parents have been struggling uh, to find ways to fill their kids' time during the summer. Mm. Uh, is now a safe time for parents to take kids back to libraries? I know it's impossible to make a blanket statement, but just your opinion. So right now, most of our libraries are doing a lot of virtual programming. We are in the midst. Um, most of our programs will be wrapping up in the next week or so for our summer reading and summer learning programs. And we call them summer learning as well, because sometimes it's not just about how many hours of reading, but how you engage with that book through activities. Um, so kids are a huge part of what libraries do in terms of inspiring that love of reading and the love of learning and support educational success. Because we know that people who are traditionally participating in library summer reading programs, those students have less slippage in their reading skills and their abilities when they go back to school in the fall. So preventing what we call summer slide is an important part of what they're doing. Now, in terms of bringing kids in person right now to the library, a lot of libraries are doing curbside delivery or what we call grab and go bags or lobby pickup if you've requested materials on hold and are not able to have the same group programming because um, little ones in particular, it's really hard to say like, okay, everybody stay six feet apart. <laughs> uh, but libraries are very focused on safety. So if a few of those libraries are open and doing small group, you know, perhaps less than 10, 
uh, groups for a story time with a parent and a child. Those are still happening and they are doing everything in terms of staff are all wearing masks, um, plexiglass shields and spacing out. And while the weather's good, we're able to be, a lot of our libraries may have outdoor space too, where they can be out in the uh, garden or the yard or even in the parking lot, but not all library buildings and spaces accommodate that. So if the library says they're open, they're definitely safe because they've worked through a lot of those protocols. That's great. So say you've uh, borrowed a book and you want to be nice and maybe take it back and sanitize it. That's a bad idea, isn't it? You should <laughs> let the professionals do these things. Yes, please, please don't take Clorox wipes to our books. Um, <sighs> You know, we, we appreciate that you want to do that, but libraries are, as I mentioned, uh, they are quarantining books. So it may be a little confusing because if you return your books and they are checked back in, it may look like, oh, you still have books out and due, but they're holding them to check them back in for a period of time. Most libraries, it's three days to make sure that the virus um, is no longer transmittable at that point. So do not wipe your books, do not microwave them, do not put them in the shower. Just right. return them, let the professionals handle it. Right. And and we have that, you know, option of ebooks, uh, electronic downloads and audiobooks. If you really don't want to touch the physical books and materials, we encourage you to take advantage of the robust offerings that the libraries provide in that fashion. Fantastic. Um, tell me about the fiscal impact that this situation has had on your libraries. I know libraries often run on a shoestring, but I, I imagine there's some increased costs as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah very, very true. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, libraries do rely on fundraising within their community to make their yearly operational budgets. And we're not just talking about fundraising for a capital campaign where they're trying to do improvements on the library. We're talking about fundraising to cover staff and uh, paying the electric bill. And a survey that we had done back in May indicated that 73% of our public libraries had to cancel spring fundraisers mm -hmm. and more have been canceled since. So they are really hurting financially. And you know those areas that have contributions such as the regional asset district, um, it, you know, they've made some major cuts um, because yeah. they're not receiving their revenue right. as well. And libraries are very creative. They want to offer as much as possible for no cost to their patrons or low cost to the patrons. Um, but those services, you know, are not free to the library. They have to still pay for it. So I think, you know, most folks uh, in the library world have applied for the Paycheck Protection Program loans if they were eligible to help support that because we do have more than 12,000 library workers in Pennsylvania. Now, 65% of those are part-time um, and many libraries are only operating with, you know, zero to two full-time staff, even in those small little rural libraries. So any financial hit is really difficult. And given the significance of the education and the professionalism that they bring to the table, um, it, it's gonna be difficult in 2020, but also in 2021 financially for them. Uh, another factor, as you mentioned, libraries are community centers and often serve as cooling stations for seniors in extremely hot weather or for right. residentially challenged folks who need to get out of inclement weather. Are there any discussions being made to address their needs? Right now, it is a difficult scenario because we are anxious to serve those people in our community who have those needs. 
but we have to do it in a way that is also not putting them at risk. Um, our homeless population in certain parts of uh, the state or coming into the library, or as you mentioned, the cooling stations, people who don't have air conditioning in their home. Yeah, most of our libraries, if they are allowing folks into the building, it's for limited amount of time and they're encouraged not to stay all day. Whereas in the past, they would come in, pick out magazines or newspapers and you know, very unobtrusively enjoy their day and take advantage of the library building. That gathering center, and serving the community as that is, is a challenge with the virus and the current restrictions on occupancy levels. So libraries are trying to come up with solutions for that, whether it's short periods of time, limited occupancy, but we're hopeful that as uh, the health indications allow, we'll be able to expand that. Excellent. Finally, tell me about PA Forward Star Libraries. Sure. So behind me, and, and the shirt that I'm wearing is kind of our <laughs> tagline, literacy is power. Libraries provide the fuel for you, your community in Pennsylvania. And that was a tagline and we launched the PA Forward program in 2011 because we want our community, we want all of Pennsylvania to understand the value of the library. And we do that by talking about literacy in five main buckets. Basic literacy or what we consider traditional literacy, health literacy, civic and social, financial literacy, and of course, information literacy. And it ties into lifelong learning. We believe that as you improve your own literacy skills at all ages, you're gonna be more successful as a person. You're gonna be more successful as a community member in your job and in the support that you provide for our whole of Pennsylvania. And when we talk about that, uh, the PA Forward Initiative was focused on the programming aspect of what libraries do in terms of programming, not just the books, not just the databases, not just the play materials for young children, but why we do that. And a good example is on health literacy. Uh, we have a partnership with the Pennsylvania Department of Insurance, for example, and we help promote sign up for the children's health insurance program um, to make sure that kids have the health insurance that they need and we provide opportunities for the kids to play and learn while the parents are filling out the form with the help of Department of Insurance folks who come to the library. You think about what we do with PA Forward, um, we want all of Pennsylvania to move forward and those literacies are so important at all ages Health literacy programming for seniors might be reminding them to check their blood pressure regularly or making sure that their prescription medications are current and that they understand how to read those instructions. Um, so literacy at all ages is a key component of what PA Forward is, moves us all forward. And the great thing is libraries that are doing this can then complete actions to identify if they are a bronze, a silver or a gold star library. And we launched the uh, star library program back in 2016 statewide, and it's really grown immensely. And you can look up uh, whether or not your library is a gold star library. And that means that they're connected, not just with the books and materials in the library, but with community resources and partnering to make sure that we are serving the needs of our residents. Fabulous. Christy, thanks so much for all your responses. General, I'll hand it back to you. Thanks. Great. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and for what not just you, but everyone involved with the library systems in Pennsylvania does for for not just our, our children, but for every age group in Pennsylvania. It is a critical component of uh, of our of our state. And just for the, the plug on this, you know, getting to literacy level by grade three is critical. 
mm-hmm. for your future, um, for the future of almost every child. So right. our libraries play a critical component of that. So thank you for that and just what you do for our communities all over Pennsylvania every single day. Uh, thank you so much, Christopher, for your time. If you have any final words, please feel free. Uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. Libraries do serve all ages, as you mentioned, and particularly as uh, schools are trying to reopen. We know that libraries will be a key part in that recovery and support. We know that libraries will continue to offer internet access and computers um, for people applying for jobs who maybe lost their jobs during this time. So call your library or reach out on their website if you have internet access and if you need support. They're there to help and guide you. And we're so proud of our libraries in Pennsylvania and uh, are, are happy to be partners with all of our different community organizations and inspire those future future generations, as well as maintain the health of all of us currently working and living in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Again, Christy, thank you for your time and uh, stay safe out there. And everyone else, thanks for tuning in. Be smart, be safe. We're all in this together and please support your local library. That's Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale doing a Facebook Live with Christy Buecher, the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Library Association. The Auditor General has been doing a series of Facebook Lives that are also on the Auditor General website as well, so you may want to check out some of his other topics. Now, don't go away. When we come back, we're going to revisit Amy Everett's from the Women's Resource Center and hear again from Dr. Fernando. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. Coming up, Dr. Rajiv Fernando will be talking with Intercom's Doc Medic. But first, Intercom's Rocky and Lissa caught up with Amy Everett's from the Women's Resource Center. I've got Amy Everett's from the Women's Resource Center on the line now, and we had them on when quarantine first started. And Amy, you were saying then that your hotline was virtually silent because people were trapped in their homes in these abusive situations, so they didn't feel like they could reach out. But now that we're in a more fluid stage of this pandemic, you're noticing a new trend. What are you noticing now? Well, it's like you said in the beginning, a lot of people were just stuck at home with their batters and maybe didn't have the opportunity to get out and now our phones are ringing off the hook um i think a lot of it might be because of state restrictions or are lessening people are getting um more comfortable in a in a pandemic world and you know i think it's just we want people to know that we're here you know and we've been doing everything we can to get the word out that our services um you know, we offer everything from uh, court accompaniment to counseling to safe housing and that they don't have to stay in a situation that they're not safe in. And really, so it's, a, it's, it's a test for any relationship, let alone one that maybe has a background in, in some kind of physical abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, statistically, we know that only about 10 percent. Um, report domestic abuse to the police, and that's in the non-pandemic world. Wow. Mm. Two questions for you. If someone, first of all, is in an abusive situation, what's the best way and quickest, easiest way for them to get a hold of you? And then is there anything we can do as the public to help you guys out in your efforts of helping them? Sure. The best way you can get in touch with us is to call our hotline, which is 1-800-257-5765. That will put you um, in touch with one of our, our counselor advocates Great. and we'll get you the help you need. And that is 24 hours and confidential. It's a confidential hotline. 
Excellent. And as far as what we need, we always need the public support. Um, please visit our website. Consider making a contribution. Um, one night of safe housing, and last year in Lackawanna County and Susquehanna County alone, we provided 15,000 safe nights wow. of housing in just one year. So um, every dollar goes a long way. We ask, you know, that you consider making a contribution and also just learning about what domestic violence and sexual assault looks like. So you can help yourself or help a friend. Well, Amy, God bless you and everybody at Women's Resource Center. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Anytime. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. You too. And once again, Amy reminds us that hotline number is 1-800-257-5765. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Rajiv Fernando and Intercom's Doc Medic has the questions for him. Hey, good morning. It's uh, Dr. Fernando from New York. How are you? Dr. Fernando, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on this show. Thank you so much for coming on again. So uh, I got like four questions, no, five questions I want to ask you because you know the answers to pretty much everything here. Um, one of them that just came up the other day, I did want to ask, somebody was saying, is there a difference between like if you're just going to get your COVID-19 test done? And is there a difference between a regular test and one where you're showing symptoms? Uh, Absolutely not. It's the same test. And I think that's the whole, uh, that's what we really need by screening asymptomatic uh, carriers. That's like the most important thing, which is what New York has done so well. And now we we have only 1% zero positivity. When you see a, a, when you see a state or a, a city with 85% 85% uh, positive mm-hmm. that actually tells you that uh, that tells you that they're just screening the infectious people and they're not scr- uh, testing the asymptomatic. Yeah, the story I heard, which is weird because it didn't make sense to me. Somebody goes, oh yeah, when, it, when you tell them you have symptoms, they go in deeper with the swab and if you're just going there to get tested, they only go in a little bit. So I'm like, well, let me ask no, the pro. No, no, in, <laughs> Inaccurate. I can tell you that, uh, you know, when I got screened, the, the lady put the... Uh, the uh, the swab it touched it touched my brain so yeah. I could tell you with certainty. <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, in your opinion, because this is the big thing, school's about to go back here in Pennsylvania too. Um, do you think it's a good idea for kids to go back, or should they be doing school from home? I I think it's a good idea for schools to go back. Um, You know, we have to start going, but I think it'll be like county to county. And, you know, uh, the real thing is, I mean, social distancing, the single most important thing is masks for me and disinfection of the classroom. Then, you know, people wearing masks. I mean, we have to adopt a universal policy uh, with masks. That's the only way we're going to keep schools uh, safe. I know we saw, where was it in Georgia the other day? It was that high school where the girls ended up putting that video out where they're showing everybody crammed into the hallway that's uh, insane really yeah and then what they got at that point there were like nine kids the next day or day two that started testing positive yeah this is the kind of thing i mean if we're we're reopening there's no slam dunk answer to say you know what let's reopen everything's going to be okay everything's not going to be okay if we don't uh, um you know take over this the masks and uh, we have to have a universal policy against that because remember the kids, when they get infected, they take it home to their parents, elderly, who can really get uh, very, very sick. So, I mean, I think it's a good idea to open schools, but very, very cautious. And also, I think uh, um, the uh, the school should be able to make modifications. Um, if they're seeing something new or they're not happy about something, slide back or change it. It's going to be very challenging for schools 
but I really think uh, opening up schools is a good idea. Yeah, I mean, my wife's a school teacher, and she said, you know, she's looking forward to going back. But I know there are teachers that like, well, I don't want to be in the classroom, that kind of thing, which is going on. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Pennsylvania is very weird because it's such a big state that there are areas that, you know, have zero people testing positive, certain counties. And then, you know, our county right here, Luzerne County, uh, I think we had 25 again, which, you know, in the big picture, when you look at a big city, doesn't sound like a lot. But for this area, that was a high number. No, it is a high uh, high number. And definitely, like I mentioned, it should be open based on county to county. And like you said, uh, for, uh, for Pennsylvania, you just can't have a blanket statement and say, you know what, just... Uh, just open, it's really got to be county to county. Let's take Dallas, for example. If there is a county with uh, persistently no infections, clean, you know what, I wouldn't have a problem opening something up in Texas. As long as community has no infections, no spread, I mean, you should just go for it. So that's an important example to say it's really county by county. And, you know, parents, teachers, everyone has to be in contact. It's going to be a lot of work for the school, um, you know, the uh, program, it's going to be a lot of work between teachers um, and uh, parents. Sometimes the younger kids may not understand the whole spectrum of disease, but right. you know it's important for kids also to start wearing masks. It's very important. Like you mentioned in Georgia, people weren't wearing masks, so that's right. the problem. We have to embrace a universal mask wearing. That's, that's what's going to keep our schools safe. Doctor, do you have any tips for like parents, you know, especially with small kids who will be going back to school? For example, bring multiple masks or anything like that, or or just you know pretty much just wear the one mask all day. Is that okay? I think that's perfectly fine, and it depends on your economic situation. Traditionally, if you're wearing a mask, you usually use it once a day. But if you're using the clo- uh, the clo- uh, clothing type of mask with that type of material. You know, you can use it again and again, but watch it, or even at the end of the day, you can put it in a in a corner, which is a cold counter, keep it safe over there, and you can reuse it. But um, I really don't have a problem. As long as people are wearing their masks, you can pick the blue mask, what we see pretty commonly, that's uh, try to use that once a day. Uh, the other thing, the blanket statement is if you see a mask that's contaminated or you see some dirt or... Some, some sort of soiling on the mask, take it off right away because at this point you've compromised the safety uh, off the mask, which and people could be spreading disease. So that's very important. Okay. We're talking to Dr. Fernando here this morning. A question just came out in the news too. Uh, Russia announced they have a vaccine. Do you think it's too soon or is it something you, you know, wait? I know we're talking here in America could be November, December, early part of next year. You know, How long do you wait to see what side effects there might be? Very, very unsafe to release this vaccine into the community. Uh, once again, I think it might be something political. But the, the vaccine in Russia, of course, there was some sort of a breakthrough uh, into our uh, software where the Russians, I'm sorry, I don't mean to get political, but they were involved. They were looking into our protocols as well. Right. Uh, but very unsafe. You know, this is they haven't even gone to phase three trials, which is, you know, testing up to 30,000 people, a large group of people and watching them for side effects. So it's a very, very unsafe thing. I, uh, I don't, I don't advocate for that at all. And politically speaking, not to, I, I feel some people may try to push a vaccine sometime around November third, right. just to say, okay, <laughs> we have a, we have a vaccine. Um, so that's going to be dangerous as well. So remember, we have to go through the phase three, which is you know a month and month of watching. 
and, and that's the safest thing for people. I'm pretty sure if you have a, something by the end of uh, October and people say, well, it's going to work, there's already a lot of hesitancy to vaccines in America with the anti-vaxxer campaign. So people are not, the minute you say, well, it's not studied well enough, no one's going to go for this vaccine. Right. So I really think we have to wait the distance. Like I said, you know, we've done really well where, uh, quote unquote, Operation Warp Speed, which is we're really going as fast as we can. But I wouldn't shorten that period anymore. Uh, we should just stick to the six months that we're following in uh, phase three. That's good. Yeah, my wife, it's funny because we're different on it because I always get like the flu vaccine and things like that. And I said, yeah, when it comes out, I'll get it. And she's like, I'm going to wait a while because I want to see if there's side effects or anything. But yeah, I mean, side effects could be years away if there are, right? Not just a month or two. Absolutely. And those are the kind of things you'll have to make a risk versus benefit situation. Do you want to give the vaccine to someone whose immune system is compromised, they have cancer, or do you say, well, we have to wait for years? And it's uh, it's a risk versus benefit situation. As a physician, I would tell people who are going to get the vaccine, we have a good vaccine right now. Uh, it's, could we have long-term side effects? Of course. We just don't know about it. But what's more important for the patient at this very time? So that's how we're going to go about giving these vaccines. And Dr. Fernando, who, by the way, is an infectious disease specialist, what, what's the question you get from your friends who are not doctors, by the way, that you know always want to get information out of you? What's the thing they seem to ask you the most? You know, unfortunately, uh, I still get a, a, every day at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. I, you know, a, a lot of time to answer questions. I get emails, text, uh, social media. Yeah. So the question I still get asked most, unfortunately, is the question on hydroxychloroquine. And I, I just don't know what else to say, really. I mean, there are countries all over the world have, have said this. We've had some unnecessary um, footage on TV, people standing like, uh, you know, Supreme Court steps. And I just, I just don't know what to do. It's just, uh, it's just a hard, I have no more energy to answer these questions. As a matter of fact, I have like a cut, copy, paste answer for <laughs> Dr. Thorson. Because I, I really don't have anything else to offer. And the question is, why would you use hydroxychloroquine, which is a questionable uh, efficacy when you have slam-dunk treatment like remdesivir and dexamethasone. We know this works. So when the patient comes into the hospital and they need to be put on ventilation, it's not a time to say, well, this is work. Well, this is not going to work. No, you go for standard of care that we know for sure will work. So I mean, that's the top question I get asked every single day. That's funny. Well, talking to Dr. Rajiv Fernando. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. Of course, it's always wonderful to be on your show. And, you know, giving public information is the most important thing in my job. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Fernando, for joining us. And thanks to Intercom's DocMedic for bringing you to our program today. Coming up next on Special Edition, we're going to The Dentist. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. Sarah Cheveria is the Executive Vice President of Delta Dental of California. California, but they have offices and they're involved right here in Northeastern Pennsylvania. We had the opportunity to talk with Sarah about, yes, getting back into the dentist chair and, yes, making sure that you keep on top of your dental visits because they're important.
Delta Dental of California. We cover 36 million members across 15 states. And so we have offices in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania, and we're headquartered in the state of California. Now, I know my dentist already was very concerned about safety and patients and, the, you know, the employees there. But now that's gone up one more step. So can you give us just a little bit of an overview to start what some of the changes have, have you taken in uh, your dentist's since COVID-19? You know, you started by sharing something really important, which is that dentists have always had a strong focus on infection control in their offices. And they should be taking every precaution because they want to keep themselves, their staff, and of course you as a patient um, really safe during this time. But I think, you know, what people should um, or could prepare for that will be a little bit different is it's likely that your dentist is going to start with a health screening and will want to know if you've been exposed to COVID-19, if you've traveled. They may take your temperature or ask that you take your temperature before you arrive. It's likely that they will have you arrive and stay in your car, notifying them that you're there so that they can meet you either at your car, at a table outside. Um, I think it's important for parents to know that this is a time when you may not be able to accompany your child um, in to see the dentist. Of course, they're trying to also limit contact and maintain social distancing, so this is really important. But I think once you're in the dentist chair, some of the things that you might notice is that while your hygienist or your dentist has probably always, you know, been wearing gear like a mask and goggles or things like that, um, they might be wearing gowns, they might be wearing face shields or, you know, changing out their gloves while you're um, there for your visit. I think that um, you might experience them using less of the contraptions that, you know, put uh, droplets into the air <laughs> and using more of the, you know, more manual processes and greater suction. But I think um, overall that, uh, you know, things that we're experiencing in the grocery store like plexiglass between you and the person who might be checking you out are things that we should expect. And, you know, I'll just underscore again what, what you started with, which is, Dentists have always um, taken incredible precautions for us, and I think that my personal experience made me feel really safe going to the dentist, and I was really glad to get back in the chair. The whole idea with COVID is if you have underlying conditions, and so that in itself could be a deterrent for especially senior citizens. You know, nearly 70% of people over 65 have some kind of gum disease, and a dentist is often the only doctor that, that people see in a year, and making sure to get into that doctor's visit, that dental visit, is so important right now because something that can seem small or insignificant can certainly get more complicated if it's left untreated, and a dentist who's providing that checkup, that cleaning, especially for seniors during this time, um, is so important because oral health and health are very, very linked and that dentist may be able to um, get a glance at something that could be an early indicator of heart disease, of diabetes, of um, even Alzheimer's or cancer. And you want to make sure that, um, you know, you're doing everything you can to be very preventative 
and getting in to see that dentist can be really key, especially for our seniors. But you mentioned those cleanings, and they are indeed very important. You know, they're really important. I mean, according to the CDC, one in five people over 65 have untreated tooth decay, and there's a number of reasons for that. Some of us take medications where the side effect is dry mouth, and if you have less saliva in your mouth, you're having less bacteria washed away. Additionally, as we age, so do our fillings, and decay is more likely to develop around those fillings. And gum recession becomes more common for those of us over 40. So, again, I think even if you don't feel the pain or something may not be obvious, getting in and having a hygienist and a dentist really um, do that preventative visit is so key for all of us, but especially for those of us who are seniors. Is there teledentistry? Oh, I'm so glad you asked about that because I think that's one of the things that people are learning about as they're seeking options. Absolutely. If you can't see the dentist in person for whatever reason, you should ask them about their teledentistry options. Many insurers, including us at Delta Dental, we cover teledentistry for consultation. And, you know, I'll share here that what it might involve is that you take pictures of your mouth, you take a picture of a tooth, you take a picture of your smile, you open your mouth and you get those pictures into your dentist and or you might meet with them, you know, via video conferencing. So you might have a Skype call with them or a FaceTime call or Zoom and do your consultation with them having access to those pictures. And that can be a really great way if you can't get in to see the dentist right away. Um, to make sure you get that consultation and at least start that conversation with your dentist about your overall oral health. Let's get back to the idea of the kids going. It's that time of the year when children are going and getting their preschool checkups. I can't go <laughs> in with my child? What, Sarah? What are, what are we going to do? I have uh, myself a child who is in braces and, of course, has to go because inevitably a bracket may, you know, fall off or, you know, cause pain or whatever. And, you know, I'll just come back to, you know, we're, we're all working really hard to um, maintain social distancing and be really careful during this time. And so are our dentist's office. And I know it can be really hard to imagine um, letting your little one walk away from you at the car or (laughs) um, go into that office. But I would say reach out to your dentist's office. They understand this, especially any dentist who takes care of children. And they'll walk you through what the protocols will look like. And they'll help you have that conversation with your child to make it a better experience for you and for them. But it is just as important that our children get in to see their dentist for all the same reasons that it is for us, getting that cleaning, getting that checkup, and making sure that the oral health and the health of our children is great, especially as they head into whatever their schooling is going to look like in the fall, which for many of us is they're going to stay right here. I also went, and um, I think it was a great experience um, in, in the sense that I almost, you know, realized that it's, uh, it's a greater risk for them than for me because everything that they had in place for me as a patient um, really, you know, minimized that risk. You know, many dentist offices even when they were closed, were able to take care of those emergency situations. And it's that, you know, people reach out to their dentist's office. I know a lot of them are being really proactive 
about reaching out to their patients and finding times to get them in, to get them seen, and to get that preventative care. But for emergency care, I would say reach out, have a conversation, understand what the protocols are going to be, and you're going to have a good experience. Now, before I let you go, is there anything else, Sarah, that you would like our listeners to know about getting to the dentist, Delta Dental, uh, anything at all that you would like to share with us? I think I would like to just close by saying I know that um, with COVID-19, it has been, you know, potentially difficult to, to get that visit in. And, you know, I think it's highly recommended that people get in the dentist chair twice a year because of your oral health and your health being so linked. It's, you know, even if you make it to the dentist's office one time this year, that's better than not going at all. So I just want to leave people with that. And if, you know, folks want more information about what the protocols are or they're nervous and they want to do some research, um, the ADA.org website has some great information about those precautions. And I'm just really happy that you had me on your show today. I love talking about smiles and oral health and mouths. And I just wish everybody a really great day. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.